Welcome to an Uvula audio presentation of Jeeves in the Morning by P.G. Wodehouse. It's very strange. It occurs to me as I say those words that we seem to be doing a lot of writers with initials here for the last few podcasts. H.P. Lovecraft, L. Frank Baum, and now Wodehouse. So who was P.G. Wodehouse? Sir Pelham Grenville Wodehouse was born in 1881 and died in 1975. He was an English comic writer who enjoyed enormous popular success for more than a hundred years. Wodehouse was an acknowledged master of English prose, admired by contemporaries like Evelyn Waugh and Rudyard Kipling and modern writers like Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett. Uh, many of Wodehouse's stories skewered the English upper class and made them look like buffoons and complete fools. Bertie Wooster was one of his most famous characters and was no exception. His foolish foppishness drives the stories that he occupies. Wodehouse's characters are often eccentric with peculiar attachments such as to pigs or newts or socks. His mentally negligible good-natured characters invariably make their lot worse by their half-witted schemes to improve bad situations. Wodehouse's aristocrats, however, embody many of the comic attributes that characterize buffoons created by a genius. In many cases, the classic eccentricities of Wodehouse's upper class give rise to plot complications. Relatives, especially aunts and uncles, are commonly depicted with an exaggerated power to help or impede marriage or financial prospects or simply make life miserable. Friends are often more trouble than a comfort in Wodehouse stories. The main character is typically being placed in a most painful situation just to please a friend. Antagonists, particularly rivals in love, are frequently terrifying and just as often get their comeuppance in a delicious fashion. Policemen and magistrates are typically portrayed as threatening, yet easy to fool, often through the simple expedient of giving a false name. Wodehouse's servants are frequently far cleverer than their masters. This brings us to the manservant of Jeeves. Jeeves works as a butler and valet for Bertie, but has far more sense than he will ever have, as you will see much of the comic effect of Wodehouse derives from the fact that the clueless Bertie Wooster, who narrates most of the stories, is for the most part blissfully unaware of how he is being manipulated. When Bertie gets into one of his scrapes leading to an unwanted social obligation, legal trouble, or marriage engagement, Jeeves invariably comes up with a subtle plan to save the day, often without Bertie's knowledge. The book that we will be presenting here was called Jeeves in the Morning and published in 1946 in the U.S. It was retitled Joy in the Morning when it was published in Britain in 1947. In the book, Bertie is persuaded to brave the home of his fearsome Aunt Agatha and her husband, Lord Warpleston, knowing that his former fiancée, the beautiful but brainy Lady Florence Cray, will also be in attendance. What ensues will come to be remembered as the steeple-bumply horror, with Bertie under constant threat of engagement to Cray, violence from her oafish suitor Stilton Cheesewright, and unnamed peril from the acid tongue of Aunt Agatha. Only the masterful Jeeves can save the day. And now, Jeeves in the morning. Part 1, Chapter 1 After the thing was all over, when peril had ceased to loom and happy endings had been distributed in heaping handfuls, and we were driving home with our hats on the side of our heads, having shaken the dust of steeple bubbly from our tyres, I confessed to Jeeves 
that there had been moments during the recent proceedings when Bertram Worcester, though no weakling, had come very near to despair. Within a touch of Jeeves, Unquestionably, affairs had developed a certain menacing trend, sir. I saw no ray of hope. It looked to me as if the bluebird had thrown in the towel and formally ceased to function. And yet here we are, all boops-a-daisy. Makes one think a bit, hmm? Yes, sir. There's an expression on the tip of my tongue which seems to me to sum up the whole thing, or rather, when I say an expression, I mean a saying, a, a wheeze, a, a gag, what I believe is called a, a saw, something about joy doing something. Joy cometh in the morning, sir. That's the baby? Not one of your things, is it? No, sir. Well, it's dashed good, I say. And still I think there can be no neater way of putting in a nutshell the outcome of the super-sticky affair of Nobby Hopwood, Stilton Cheesewright, Florence Cray, my Uncle Percy, J. Chichester Clam, Edwin the Boy Scout, and old Boko Fittleworth, or as my biographers will probably call it, the steeple bumpy horror. Even before the events occurred, which I'm about to relate, the above hamlet had come high up on my list of places to be steered sedulously clear of. I don't know if you have ever seen one of those old maps where they mark a spot with a cross and put dragons be here or keep ye eye skinned for hippogriffs, but I had always felt that some such kindly warning might well have been given to pedestrians and traffic with regard to this steeple bumply. A picturesque settlement, yes, none more so in all of Hampshire. It lay embowered, as I believe the expression is, in the midst of smiling fields and leafy woods, hard by a willow-fringed river, and you couldn't have thrown a brick in it without hitting a honeysuckle-covered cottage or beaning an apple-cheeked villager. But you remember what the fellow said. It's not a bally bit of use, every prospect pleasing if a man is vile. And the catch about steeple Bumpley was that it contained Bumpley Hall, which in its turn contained my Aunt Agatha and her second husband. And when I tell you that this second H was none other than Percival Lord Warplesden, and that he had with him his daughter Florence and his son Edwin, the latter as pestestential a stripling as ever wore khaki shorts, and went spooring, or whatever it is those Boy Scouts do, you will understand why I had always declined my old pal Boko Fiddleworth's invitations to visit him at the bijou residence he maintained in those parts. I had also had to be similarly firm with Jeeves, who had repeatedly hinted his wish that I should take a cottage there for the summer months. There was, it appeared, admirable fishing in the river, and here's a man who dearly loves to flick the baited hook. No, Jeeves, I'd been compelled to say, much though it pains me to put a stopper on your simple pleasures, I cannot take the risk of running into that gang of plug uglies. Safety first. And he replied, Very good, sir. And the matter arrested. But all the while, unsuspected by Bertram, the shadow of Steeple Bumpley was creeping nearer and nearer, and came a day when it tore off its whiskers and pounced. Hardly enough, the morning on which this major disaster occurred was one that found me completely, even exuberantly, in the pink. No inkling of the soup into which I had to be plunged came to mar my perfect bien-entre. 
I had slept well, shaved well, showered, bathed well. It was with a merry cry that I greeted Jeeves as he brought in the coffee and kippers. Art's Botkins, Jeeves, I said. I was in rare fettle this a.m. Talk about exulting in my youth. I feel up and doing with a heart of any fate, as Tennyson says. Longfellow, sir. Or if you prefer it, Longfellow. I'm in no mood to split hairs. Well, what's the news? Miss Hopwood called while you were asleep, sir. No, really? I wish I'd seen her. The young lady was desirous of entering your room and rousing you with a wet sponge, but I dissuaded her. I considered it best that your repose should not be disturbed, sir. I applauded this watchdog spirit, showing as it did both the kindly heart and the feudal outlook, but continued to tut-tut a bit at having missed the young pipsqueak, with whom my relations had always been of the matiest. This Zenobia Nobby Hopwood was old Warpleston's ward, as I believe it is called, a pal of his, just before he stopped ticking over some years previously, had left him in charge of his daughter. I don't know how these things are arranged. No doubt documents have to be drawn up and dotted lines signed on, but whatever the procedure, the upshot was as I have stated. When all the smoke had cleared away, my Uncle Percy was Nobby's guardian. Young Nobby, eh? When did she blow into the great city, I asked. From becoming Uncle Percy's ward, she had, of course, joined the strength of his steeple bumply lair, and it was only rarely nowadays that she came to London. Last night, sir. Making a long stay? Only until tomorrow, sir. Hardly worth while sweating up just for a day, I should have thought. I understand she came because her ladyship desired her company, sir. I quailed a bit at that. You don't mean Aunt Agatha's in London, do you? Merely passing through, sir, replied the honest fellow, calming my suspicions. Her ladyship is on her way to minister to Master Thomas, who has contracted mumps at his school. His allusion to the old relative's son by her first marriage, one of our vilest citizens. Many good judges rank him even higher in England's rogues gallery than her stepson Edwin. I rejoiced to learn that he had got mumps, and toyed for a moment with a hope that Aunt Agatha would catch them from him. And what had Nobby to say for herself? She was regretting that she saw so little of you nowadays, sir. Quite mutual, the agony, Jeeves. There are few better eggs than this hopwood. She expressed her hope that you might shortly see your way to visit Steeple Bumpley. I shook the head. Out of the queue, Jeeves. The young lady tells me the fish are biting well there just now. No, Jeeves, I'm sorry. Not even if they bite like serpents do I go near Steeple Bumpley. Very good, sir. He spoke somberly, and I endeavoured to ease the strain by asking for another cup of coffee. Was Nobby alone? No, sir. That was a gentleman with her who spoke as if he were acquainted with you. Miss Hopwood addressed him as Stilton. Big chap? Noticeably well-developed, sir. With a head like a pumpkin? Yes, sir. There was a certain resemblance to the vegetable. Must have been a companion of my earlier years named G. Darcy Cheesewright. In our whimsical way, we used to call him Stilton. Haven't seen him for ages. He lives in the country somewhere, and to hobnob with Burton Worcester 
it is imperative that you stick around the metropolis. Odd, him knowing Nobby. I gathered from the young lady's remarks, sir, that Mr. Cheesewright is also a resident of Steeple Bumpley. Really? It's a small world, Jeeves. Yes, sir. I don't know when I've seen it get smaller, I said, and would have gone more deeply into the subject, but at this juncture the telephone tinkled out a summons, and he shimmered off to answer it. Through the door, which he had chanced to leave ajar, the ear detected a good deal of yes, my lording, and very good, my lording, seeming to indicate that he had hooked one of the old nobility. Who was it? I asked as he filtered in again. Lord Warpleston, sir. It seemed almost incredible to me, looking back, that I should have received this news item with nothing more than mild surprise. Oh, well. Amazing, I mean that I shouldn't have spotted the sinister way in what you might call the steeple bumpling note had begun to intrude itself like some creeping fog or miasma, and, and trembled in every limb, asking myself what this portended. But so it was. The significance of the thing failed to penetrate. I owed with merely a faint spot of surprise. The call was for me, sir. His lordship wishes me to go to his office immediately. He wants to see you? Such was my impression, I gathered, sir. Did he say why? No, sir. Merely that the matter was of considerable urgency. I mused, thoughtfully chomping a kipper. It seemed to me that there could be but one solution. Do you know what I think, Jeeves? He's in a spot of some kind and needs your counsel. It may be so, sir. I bet it's so. He must know all about your outstanding gifts. You can't go on as you've gone on so long, dishing out aid and comfort to all and sundry, without acquiring a certain reputation, if only in the family circle. Grab your hat and race along. I shall be all agog to learn the inside story. What sort of day is it out? Extremely clement, sir. Sunshine and all that? Yes, sir. I thought as much. That must be why I'm feeling so dashed fit. Then I think I'll take myself for an erring. Tell me, I said, for I was a trifle remorseful at having had to adopt that firm attitude about going to Steeple Bumpley, and wished to bring back into his life the joy which my refusal to allow him to get in among the local fish had excluded from it. Is there any little thing I can do for you while I'm out? Sir? Any little gift you would like, I mean. That is extremely kind of you, sir. Not at all, Jeeves. The sky's the limit. State your desire. Well, sir, there has recently been published a new and authoritatively annotated edition of the works of the philosopher Spinoza. Since you are so generous, I would appreciate that very much. You shall have it. It shall be delivered at your door in a plain van without delay. You're sure you've got the name right? Spinoza? Yes, sir. Doesn't sound probable, but no doubt you know best. Spinoza, eh? Is he the Book Society's choice of the month? I believe not, sir. Well, he's the only fellow I've ever heard who wasn't. Right ho, I'll see to it instanter. And presently, having assembled the hat, gloves, and neatly rolled you, I sauntered forth. As I made my way to the bookery, I found my thoughts turning once more, as you may readily imagine, to this highly suggestive business of old Warplesden. The thing intrigued me. I found it difficult to envisage, 
what possible sort of jam a man like that could have got himself into. When about 18 months before, news had reached me through the well-informed channels that my Aunt Agatha, for many years a widow, or derelict as I believe it's called, was about to take another pop at matrimony, my first emotion, as natural in the circumstances, had been a gentle pity for the unfortunate Coop slated to step up the aisle with her. She, as you are aware, being my tough aunt, the one who eats broken bottles and conducts human sacrifices by the light of the full moon. But when details began to come in, and I discovered that the bimbo who had drawn the short straw was Lord Warplesden, the shipping magnate, this tender commiseration became sensibly diminished. The thing I felt would be no walkover. Even if in the fullness of time she wore him down, and at length succeeded in making him jump through hoops, she would know she had been in a fight. For he was hot stuff, this Warplesden. I had known him all my life. It was he who, at the age of fifteen, when I was fifteen, I mean, of course, found me smoking one of his special cigars in the stable yard, and chased me a mile across difficult country with a hunting crop. And though with advancing years our relations had naturally grown more formal, I had never been able to think of him without getting goose pimples. Given the choice between him and a hippogriff as a companion for a walking tour, I would have picked the hippogriff every time. It was not easy to see how such a man of blood and iron could have been reduced to sending out SOSs for Jeeves, and I was reflecting on the possibility of compromising letters in the possession of gold-digging blondes when I reached my destination and started to lodge my order. Good morning, good morning, I said. I want a book. Of course, I ought to have known that it's silly to try to buy a book when you go to a bookshop. It merely startles and bewilders the inmates. The moth-eaten old bird, who had stepped forward to attend to me, ran true to form. A book, sir, he said with ill-concealed astonishment. Spinoza, I replied, specifying. This had him rocking back on his heels. Did you say Spinoza, sir? Spinoza was what I said. He seemed to be feeling that if we talked this thing out long enough as man to man, we might eventually hit upon a formula. You do not mean the spinning wheel, sir? No. It would not be the poison pin? It would not. Or with gun and camera in little-known Borneo, he queried, trying a long shot. Spinoza, I repeated firmly. That was my story, and I intended to stick to it. He sighed a bit, like one who feels that the situation has got beyond him. I'll go and see if we have it in stock, sir, but possibly this may be what you're requiring. Said to be very clever. He pushed off, spinoza under his breath, in a hopeless sort of way, leaving me clutching a thing called spindrift. It looked pretty foul. The jacket showed a female with a green oblong face sniffing at a purple lily. I was just about to fling it from me and start a hunt for that poisoned pin of which he had spoken when I became aware of someone. Good gracious, bertying me and turning found the animal cries proceeded from a tall girl of commanding aspect who had oiled up behind me. Good gracious, Bertie, is that really you? I emitted a sharp gurgle and shied like a startled mustang. It was old Warplesden's daughter, Florence Cray. I'll tell you why, on beholding her, I shied and gurgled as described. I mean, if there's one thing I bar, 
It's the sort of story where people stagger to and fro, clutching their foreheads and registering strong emotion, and not a word of explanation as to what it's all about till the detective sums up in the last chapter. Briefly, then, the reason why this girl's popping up had got in amongst me in this fashion was that we had once been engaged to be married, and not so dashed long ago either. And though it all came out all right in the end, the thing being broken off and self-saved from the scaffold at the eleventh hour, it had been an extraordinary narrow squeak, and the memory remained green. The mere mention of her name was still enough to make me call for a couple of quick ones, so you can readily appreciate my agitation at bumping into her like this absolutely in the flesh. I swayed in the breeze and found myself a bit stumped for the necessary dialogue. Oh, hello, I said. Not good, of course, but it was the best I could do. Chapter 2 Scanning the roster of the females I've nearly got married to in my time, we find the names of some tough babies. The eye rests on that of Honoria Glossop, and a shutter passes through the frame. So it does when we turn to the bees and come upon Madeline Bassett. But... Taking everything into consideration, and weighing this and that, I have always been inclined to consider Florence Cray the top. In the face of admittedly stiff competition, it is to her that I would award the biscuit. Honoria Glossop was hearty, yes. Her laugh was like a steam-riveting engine, and from a child she had been a confirmed backslapper. Madeline Bassett was soppy, true. She had large melting eyes and thought the stars were God's daisy chains. These are grave defects, but to do this revolting duo justice, neither had tried to mould me, and that was what Florence Cray had done from the start. Seeming to look on Bertram Worcester as a mere chunk of plasticine in the hands of the sculptor. The root of the trouble was that she was one of those intellectual girls, steeped to the gills in serious purpose who are unable to see a male soul without wanting to get behind it and shove. We had scarcely arranged the preliminaries before she was checking up on my reading, giving the bird to Blood on the Bannisters, which happened to be what I was studying at the moment, and substituting it for a thing called Types of Ethical Theory. Nor did she attempt to conceal the fact that this was a mere pipe opener and that worse was to come. Have you ever dipped into Types of Ethical Theory? The volume is still on my shelf. Let us open it and see what it has to offer. Ah, yes, here we are. Of the two antithetic terms in the Greek philosophy, one only was real and self-subsisting. That is to say, ideal thought, as opposed to that which it has to penetrate and mould. The other, corresponding to our nature, was in itself phenomenal, unreal, without any permanent footing, having no predicates that held true for two moments together, in short, redeemed from negation only by including indwelling realities appearing through. Right. You will have got the idea, and will, I think, be able to understand why the sight of her made me give at the knees somewhat. Old wounds had been reopened. None of the embarrassment which was causing the Worcester toes to curl up inside their neat suede shoes like tendrils of some sensitive plant seemed to be affecting this chunk of the dead past. Her manner, as always, was brisk and ant-like. 
even at times when I had fallen beneath the spell of that profile of hers, which was considerable profile, and tended to make a man commit himself to statements which he later regretted, I had always felt that she was like someone training on to be an aunt. How are you, Bertie? Oh, fine, thanks. I have just run up to London to see my publisher. Fancy meeting you and in a bookshop of all places. What are you buying? Some trash, I suppose. Her gaze, which had been resting on me in a rather critical and censorious way, as if she was wondering how she could ever have contemplated linking her lot to anything so subhuman, now transferred itself to the volume in my hand. She took it from me, her lip curling in faint disgust, as if she wished she had had a pair of tongs handy. And then, as she looked at it, her whole aspect suddenly altered. She switched off the curling lip. She smiled a pleased smile. The eyes softened. A blush mantled the feature, and she positively giggled. Oh, Bertie! The gist got past me. Oh, Bertie was a thing she had frequently said to me in days when we had been affianced, but always with that sort of nasty ring in the voice which made you feel that she had been on the point of expressing her exasperation with something a good deal fruitier, but had remembered her ancient lineage just in time. This current old Bertie was quite different. It was practically a coup, as it might have been one turtle dove addressing another turtle dove. Oh, Bertie, she repeated. Well, of course I must autograph it for you, she said, and at the same moment all was suddenly made clear to me. I had missed it at first because I had been concentrating on the girl with the green face, but now I perceived at the bottom of the jacket the words, By Florence Cray. They had been half hidden by a gummed-on label which said, Book Society Choice of the Month. I saw all, and the thought of how near I had come to marrying a female novelist made everything go black for a bit. She wrote in the book with a firm hand, thus dishing any prospect that the shop would have to take it back, and putting me seven bob and a tanner down almost, as you might say, before the day had started. Then she said, Well, still with that little turtle-dove timber in her voice, Fancy, you buying spindrift. Well, one has to say the civil thing, and it may be in the agitation of the moment I overdid it a bit. I rather think that the impression I must have conveyed when I assured her that I had made a bean line for the beastly volume was that I had been counting the minutes till I could get my books on it. At any rate, she came back with a gratified simper. I can't tell you how pleased I am, not just because it's mine, but because I see that all the trouble I took training your mind was not wasted. You have grown to love good literature. It was at this point, as if he had entered on cue, that the moth-eaten bird returned, and said they had not got old Pop Spinoza, but could get him for me. He seemed rather depressed about it all, but Florence's eyes lit up as if somebody had pressed a switch. Bertie, this is amazing! Do you really read Spinoza? It's extraordinary how one yields to that fatal temptation to swank. It undoes the best of us. Nothing, I mean, would have been simpler than to reply she had got the data twisted and that the authoritatively annotated edition was a present for Jeeves, but instead of doing the simple, manly, straightforward thing, I had to go and put on the dog. Oh, rather, I said, 
with an intellectual flick of the umbrella. When I have a leisure moment, you will generally find me curled up with Spinoza's latest. Well... A simple word, but as she spoke it, a shudder ran through me, from brilliantined topknot to rubber shoe sole. It was a look that accompanied the yip that caused this shudder. It was exactly the same sort of look that Madeline Bassett had given me, that time I went to Totley Towers to pinch old Bassett's cow creamer, and she thought I had come because I loved her so much I couldn't stay away from her side. A frightful, tender, melting look that went through me like a red hot brad all through a pat of butter and filled me with a nameless fear i wish now i hadn't plugged spinoza so heartily and above all i wished i hadn't been caught in the act of apparently buying this blighted spindrift i saw that unwittingly i had been giving myself a terrific build-up causing the girl to see bertram worcester with new eyes and to get hep to his hidden depths it might well happen that she would review the position in the light of this fresh evidence and decide that she had made a mistake in breaking off her engagement to so rare a spirit, and at once she got thinking along those lines. Who knew what the harvest might be? An imperious urge came upon me to be elsewhere before I could make a chump of myself any further. Well, I'm afraid I must be popping, I said. Most important appointment, frightfully jolly seeing you again. We ought to see each other more, she replied, still with that melting look. We ought to have some long talks, Bertie. Oh, rather, I replied. A developed mind is so fascinating. Why don't you come over to the hall? Oh, well, one gets a bit chained to the metropolis, you know. I should like to show you the reviews of Spindrift. They are wonderful. Edwin is pasting them in an album for me. I'd love to see them sometime. Later on, perhaps. Goodbye. You're forgetting your book. Oh, thanks. Well, toodaloo, I said, and fought my way out. The appointment to which I had alluded was with the barman at the Bollinger. Seldom, if ever, had I felt in such sore need of a restorative. I headed for my destination like a heart, streaking towards cooling streams when heated in the chase, and was speedily in conference with the dispenser of lifesavers. Ten minutes later, feeling considerably better, though still shaken, I was standing in the doorway, twirling my umbrella and wondering what to do next, when my eyes were arrested by an odd spectacle. A certain rumminess had begun to manifest itself across the way.